Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Sheila Logminis, journalist and relevant radio host, giving a talk entitled Media Matter, Shaping Public Opinion for the Gospel. Ms. Logminis' talk was part of Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The topic of this paper is Media Matter, Shaping Public Opinion for the Gospel. I love titles that work on two levels, at least. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why did did it all begin with the Word? One Bible commentary tries to help us grasp this all-important idea by explaining that in the one singular, unique, eternal Word, God expresses His entire essence. Thus, the prologue of the Gospel of John elevates expression to the divine. John declares that this most perfect divine expression broke through eternity into time to communicate all truth about life. John calls the Word the true light that enlightens every man. But St. John Chrysostom's asked in a homily, quote, if he enlightens every man who comes into the world, how is it that so many have remained unenlightened? He answers his own rhetorical question by noting that some people, quote, deliberately close the eyes of their minds and, quote, do not wish to receive the beams of this light. And thus it has been from the beginning. However, we have the same mandate the apostles did to spread the light of truth and about human life and human dignity. Unlike them, we have the means to reach the whole world through modern communications media, in its various means and rapidly advancing technologies, making the global village even smaller and its citizens even closer. But only in some respects. If they are reachable at all, it will take prudent care and considerable effort to attract their attention with the true, the good, and the beautiful. The theme of this conference, the entire conference, challenging the secular culture, a call to Christians, is both daring and daunting, ennobling and enervating. We have to be daring and ennobling. We who stand even here with something to say to and about the secular culture and call on and call out our fellow Christians to take up the challenge and opportunity of the crisis of the culture it presents today, We have to be ennobling, we have to be ennobled, and we have to be daring. It is for us to show the world another way, as it ever has been for Christians. I could write a book about the collection of conversations that take place on my radio program and in events and private meetings I attend. Events like this, large events, private meetings I had in January in Washington with a a congressman after he was on my program from the Heritage Foundation. We had a a meeting, a private one, about inside things in the pro-life world, those kind of things. I could write books about these things because so much comes out of every one of those conversations. And as Dr. Crayson mentioned, I did write one last year about building up a just and humane society. But there's exponentially so much more to say about the topics and issues covered by the theme of this conference on so many levels. It's a task to focus it all into a space of only roughly 30 to 40 minutes. So here goes. I propose to approach this as one who journeys with a map, starting with the purpose of the venture and effort first, purpose and venture, uh, purpose of the venture and the effort making, or we're going to make, and then taking stock of the landscape and the setting at this particular moment of scrutiny and discernment. And then finally and determinedly mapping out where to go to reach a desired destination or at least advance toward that direction. Your purpose in holding this important conference is the church's purpose, and you know that. It's uh, though though uh, throughout different pontificates, it's been re- it's been declared and redeclared and reiterated over many decades. It still needs to be said. 
in everything we do every day. In issuing messages, our, those popes have, our, one pope after the other, in issuing messages on communications media. Look, they've declared a World Day of Communications each year and delivered a papal address for that. They've been holding Vatican conferences for years and years and years on this topic of communications, and those have increased as digital media has increased, technology has increased. And they even held the first ever blogger meetup which I was happy to see as a longtime blogger because bloggers didn't used to get respect and the Vatican gave them that and the bloggers dubbed it themselves the blogger meetup and uh, the ones who attended it to give credence and respect to their considerable presence because the Vatican was catching on back then to the fact that, that there is what's called often an alternative media and they are gaining in importance and in reach. So, the church is doing everything it can, and it's kind of falling all over itself to catch up and, and be out there where it matters, and that's where the people are. They wanted to give credence and respect to bloggers, to alternative media people, to the whole world of global communications, people who engage in it, people who consume it, and people who put it out, especially the people who put it out. And because it is a considerable presence and the influence on the global network, we know, is vast. Going back to Vatican II, in 1963, the Council issued, as many of you know, Intermorifica. Intermorifica, the decree on the means of social communication, under Pope Paul VI, who a dozen years later wrote Evangelii Nuntiandi on evangelization in the modern world, in which he said, and I say this on radio a lot, I quote this line a lot, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers and if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. It's an ancient art, storytelling. That's what witnessing is, telling my story, telling your story. He knew that, that's why he said that. Pope John Paul II addressed this prolifically, saying communications, literally, he said communications is a moral act. That gave me pause for thought when he said that. How many people who communicate Think of it as a moral act. It is. Pope John Paul II addressed this further. His apostolic letter, Rapid Development, I think it was his last major document, is not only my mission statement, but serves as the same purpose I've come to learn over time. For some of my colleagues, either in Catholic media or Catholic professionals in secular media, that's how important that document is, Rapid Development, how exquisitely beautiful John Paul's words are about engaging the world today through modern means of communications. It addressed the importance of the media in advancing the truth about humanity and human dignity and life and continuing the mission of the church. Pope Benedict wrote incisively and eloquently about the digital universe, calling on people not to shun it, as many people were at the time, many may still shun it, but he called on us as Christians to humanize it. He said, put a human face on Facebook. And Pope Francis called the, in, the, the internet itself a gift from God, quote unquote. In his 2014 World Day of Communications message, the title of which was Communication at the Service of an Authentic Culture of Encounter. Pope Francis calls on us to go out and create a culture of encounter all the time. And that's what media are, means of encountering. The one or the many. This has been and remains an important pursuit and focus in the life of our church. Going out to all the world to tell the good news, by all means possible. St. Paul believed he had reached the known world in his time, and he very nearly had. The degree to which the ability to reach the known world in this time has become simple for us all, the fact that it has become so simple defies an apt description the degree to which we can reach the, known, the whole world. So we must. Time to engage the new Areopagus. So what is that Areopagus? It's the arena of ideas, and especially carried forth by modern media. Catholic historian Christopher Dawson was probably the greatest student and teacher of the powerful role of the relationship between religion and culture, and how that, what the, the power that relationship has on civilization, the impact that has on civilization between religion and the culture, or uh, at least one of the greatest uh, relationships on the culture. 
He saw the incarnation, Dawson did, as the hinge event that altered human history and transformed human nature, revealing our dignity to ourselves and the new and elevated principles that must guide a civilization of people with such an ennobled identity, the incarnation. An important function of civilization is, of course, communication in the form, as I said, of storytelling. Again, it's ancient. That's how ancient cultures and villages and families passed on their traditions, their understanding of themselves and of their ancestors and of their, their customs. This is how it, it took on life. This is how families learned. This is how cultures created young people to, to grow up and take on the roles of their elders and so forth. The art of storytelling, that's evolved today to the modern means of communications, media and entertainment media, and it's all about the story. We have the greatest story ever told. We should be out there telling it better than any other story. The form of story, storytelling today is called by many people narrative, the cultural narrative. And I know one of my guests, George Weigel, says, I don't like this word narrative. Well, probably because it's taken on, too many people use it. And when something becomes a cliche, it loses meaning. But it, it really is necessary to use that because things do become narratives or meta-narratives. Any means of expression of the truth in a spoken or written word that determines relationships and informs life in a community is a narrative. When we hear ideas about ourselves reflect a distorted view of what we believe to be our true image, in the Christian understanding of human anthropology, that is, in human common life, for the common good, when we hear that distorted, we either lose trust in the messenger or accept an altered message and let it change our thinking. It's amazing how often history repeats itself, including and especially the errors we somehow didn't learn to avoid. Dawson saw the errors of his early 20th century age as a repeat of those in the ages of Augustine and Ignatius of Loyola, both of which ages recognized neither moral laws nor human rights. Sound familiar? We are there yet again. And Dawson's prism is especially important to apply now. I read him time and again. He warned about the revolt against Christian moral guidelines, and especially against giving importance to individual conscience. Dawson was well aware of the role communications media played in forming consciences, writing in his 1935 book, Religion in the Modern State, that, quote, the state will more and more tend to control public opinion in general, by its organs of instruction and propaganda. The whole, he wrote, the whole tendency of modern civilization is in fact to concentrate the control of opinion in the hands of a few. And that was in 1935. That was almost three decades though after, and I kept thinking I should take this out of the talk because I, you know, space and other things to say, but for some reason, I knew it had to stay in. I don't know why. There's a connection here I somehow sense. When Dawson said that in 1935, that was almost three decades after the Society for, of Professional Journalists, SPJ for short, was established. There is a Society of Professional Journalists, by the way, for those who don't know that. Dawson was writing prolific, although there are fewer professional journalists these days, I have to add, uh, from being in the know inside the world of professional journalism. Dawson was writing prolifically about morality, culture, and their importance in an age of increased travel and communication because he saw the world becoming smaller and communication becoming more important. And when he wrote that book, Religion in the Modern State, he was seeing and warning of societies in which the control of opinion drifted into the hands of a relatively few. And yet, interestingly, the SPJ, Society of Professional Journalists, had a code of ethics back then which can still be found on its current website, which shocked me, but it's there. It seems to me, reading it, to be the epitome of self-governing, autonomous service of information about the people, to the people, answerable to the state, it seems to be. The preamble of the Society for Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, the preamble says this, the Society of Professional Journalists believe that public enlightenment is the forerunner of justice and the foundation of democracy. Ethical journalism strives to ensure the free exchange of, of information that's accurate, 
fair, and thorough. An ethical journalist, it says, acts with integrity. On what, my question now, because that's still on their website, on what does an organization base a set of ethical guidelines? Especially one so formative for public opinion and individual consciousness as the press is, are. How did the society define justice? Since that's in their code. Ethical journalism. How do they define fairness and integrity? Words they use. The code was revised as recently as 2014, and it is still posted, as I said, on the society's website. Pretty much intact, believe it or not. Following my oft-repeated advice, which I give to people on the air, uh, to presume good intentions, I will not ask some obvious questions about how well those ethics are applied these days, how well they are accessed or even known by today's journalists or people who work in the media. News outlets have downsized their staffs, you need to know that, uh, and re-envisioned re their purpose and mission and operations. That's happened throughout the media. They've downsized so much. They're, they're dealing with skeleton staff. Some have even taken out like magazine, news magazines. They've stopped publishing. They're just online presences only with the skeleton staff of reporters who really very often aren't qualified for the job they do and don't do it very well. There are very good ones out there too, though. So this is all of a piece because it's about the communications media and they still, still wield a lot of power. So news outlets downsizing uh, requires more diligence, due diligence on our part and what we're engaging. They've retained so much of their former clout and we don't know how. There are public opinion polls showing us that they are going lower and lower in public opinion. The numbers are down so far, they're like with used car salesmen, no offense to you cars, used car salesmen. But they still have clout. They still have power to influence. We should not underestimate that. We should engage it. So what gives the media so much influence? The power of words. Citizens have long turned to the media to get information, as we all know here, because we probably all do it, about events in the news. And knowing the process of selection those news stories went through before making it to the pages of screens of media outlets is important, because it does go through a process that you are unaware of. Famous journalists, political theorists, and once government propagandist Walter Lippmann filled his famous book, Public Opinion, a really good one to have with startlingly simple analyses and anecdotes of the relationship between people and the press they follow to learn what's happening in the world. It was a startling analysis. This book is startling. Somewhere around the middle of the book, in the middle of a paragraph in mid-sentence, he said this, most information when it reaches us carries with it an aura of suggestion as to how we ought to feel about the news. And that was in the early 20th century. As most of us know, news stories are to varying degrees shaped, manipulated, and crafted to elicit and trigger a certain instinctive response in your mind, in mine, and everyone else's who's reading or watching, and our emotions. Things are based so much on emotions these days. It has been called semantic engineering in more recent times, and it is that. In abuse of language, abuse of power, little paperback book can fit in your pocket, and I advise you to get it. I know Ignatius puts it out by Joseph Pieper. Incredible book. I have it all highlighted up. I practically memorized the book. It's so amazing. Abuse of language, abuse of power. Joseph Pieper calls this the corruption of the word, which he traced back to Plato's lifelong battle with the sophists. And he calls them those, quote, those highly paid and popularly applauded experts in the art of twisting words, who were able to sweet talk something into something bad into something good, and to turn white into black. Sounds familiar today, doesn't it? Especially during political campaign season. He goes on, Pieper does. The specific threat for Plato comes when the sophist way of cultivating the word with exceptional awareness of linguistic nuances, perfecting the employment of verbal construction to crafty limits, thereby, and precisely in this, corrupting the meaning and the dignity of the very same words. That's where the problem really came for Plato. 
This is so important to understand today. If it wouldn't take up more time, I would reread that sentence. So, so highly did Pieper and Plato, whom he cites, regard truth and its expression. Pieper said, quote, word and language form the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit as such. And I emphasize that for the print version of this because that line says so much. Word and language form the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit as such. Today's influential culture shapers in media, both news and entertainment media, do not reflect awareness or acceptance of the common existence of the human spirit, nor a Christian understanding of the human spirit, that's certainly true, nor even a sense of the existence of the transcendent. Common vocabulary has been altered to create new perceptions. And as we know, perception becomes reality. Almost anything can be justified by redefining words and crafting them into messages favorable to actions or behaviors people otherwise would not accept. But now they're presented authoritatively and repeated often by other authorities in news media, in politics, in social media, entertainment media. And in a short time, cultural trends are not only established, they gain currency in public opinion. Read or reread Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984. Considering where we are with abortion, harvesting fetal body parts, genetic engineering, stem cell research, cloning, euthanasia, assisted suicide, mass deception, and thought control, Huxley and Orwell were prophetic in their accounts of a captive, clueless, and endangered society. How did it become legal to kill babies? The rewriting of the Constitution, which that law required, probably stands as one of the most sweeping abuses of the control of language. Since Hitler's recrafting of words to justify genocide by calling Jews parasites, robbing them of their human dignity in terrible ways, the Dred Scott decision declared that slaves did not have personhood, thus no constitutional rights. Roe v. Wade declared that although an unborn baby may have a heart and a brain and is biologically human, he or she is not a person and thus has no constitutional rights. Note, declared. The ruling declared. Made it out of whole cloth, but they declared that. So no constitutional rights. The battle to restore protection of our protection to our pre-born brothers and sisters is in many ways a war of words, said the director of Priests for Life. Since there is no rational defense for killing babies, face it, leaders of the abortion movement resorted to thought control or propaganda from the beginning. The, the, the witness of Dr. Bernard Nathanson until his death is the clearest example I've seen of that. I saw the two and worked with somebody who worked with him. The two videos he made before his death, shortly before his death, because he feared he didn't have much time left. And he really wanted to continue to say what he spent after his conversion, all of his life saying. So on these very profound, compelling, moving videos, shocking to some people, you can find them on YouTube, Bernard Nathanson, plug it in. And you can see what he says about how he helped found NARAL back when it in the, in the days of its origins. And he said, we made it all up. We fabricated the numbers. We fabricated the figures. We made it up. We made up our claims. That video is so powerful. And he so regretted everything he, as an abortionist, how many babies whose lives he took. It's powerful, it's compel talk about a compelling media, using the media you have. So it is, a, it is a battle of propaganda, and that groundwork was laid decades ago in Dr. Bernard Nathanson's own videos are testimonies to that. So how? By semantic gymnastics. I didn't make that term up. That's a term uh, in the words of a medical professional group whose business it was and is to care and not withhold care. That's their term. 
Here's how. It's a now infamous September 1970 editorial in California Medicine. That's the name of the journal. It's a journal of the California Medical Association. And that infamous editorial from 1970 is emblematic of a cultural turning point in delivering and accepting a once unacceptable message. The California, the CMA, California Medical Association, acknowledged the traditional Judeo-Christian ethic of our country that placed intrinsic value on every human being at all stages of life. It recognized that this ethic has been held sacred in the Judeo-Christian heritage, informing our laws and social policies. It acknowledged it. But then the editorial argued that a population explosion, their words, compounded by the quality of life issue, their words, combined with, quote, unprecedented technologic progress and achievement, have altogether posed, quote, new facts and social realities, which the CMA went on to say are quote, within the power of all humans to control. Therefore, the editorial proposed, and this entire section is their words, quote, it will become necessary and acceptable to place relative than absolute, rather than absolute values on things such as human life. Since the old ethic, they say, has not yet been fully displaced, it has been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing which continues, they acknowledge, to be socially abhorrent. The result, they continue, has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, they say, that human life begins at conception and is continuous, rather intra or extra uterine, until death. Still from the editorial. The vi Pay attention to this. They next say, the very considerable semantic gymnastics which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but taking a human life, would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. Put the right people up there in their business suits or nice dresses like Cecile Richards, people who are attractive, people who seem to have a lot of authority, get people in politics on your side, get people in media on your side, and now it's uh, socially impeccable auspices, repeating the lie. Continuing, so it ended with, it didn't end with this. Uh, it, here's another part of their quote. It, it is suggested, say these doctors, that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary because while a new ethic is being accepted, the old one has not yet been rejected. The editorial went on to anticipate, literally, quote, birth control and birth selection, extending inevitably to death selection and death control, and this was in 1970, before where we are now with assisted suicide movements and euthanasia movements and abortion on demand and partial birth abortion. In 1970, they anticipated this is going to go on to birth control and birth selection extending inevitably to death selection and death control, whether by the individual or by society, causing, they said, public and professional de de determinations, theirs, professional organization, of when and when not to use scarce resources. With all seriousness and due diligence here, I, I have to submit, as many of my guests have on my radio show, we have to look at Obamacare. Uh, for to see how this has come about with ethics panels in some cases doing a mor moral calculus on human life though that's not really in my I'm departing from my script but this is very important because I do a bioethics feature and all the time it's coming up on uh, calculus that's applied to human life when somebody's vulnerable impaired the cog cognitively impaired the whatever palliative care it can be Terry Schiavo so this editorial concluded Thus, it is not too early for our profession to examine this new ethic and prepare to apply it in a rational, rational, they claim, development for the fulfillment and betterment of mankind in what is almost certain to be a biologically oriented world society. How did this become a landmark for cultural acceptance of what had been considered by that culture as immoral and humane? To repeat, 
It's amazing how often history repeats itself, including and especially the errors we somehow didn't learn to avoid. In Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand's memoir, translated, edited, and published by the Hildebrand Legacy Project, which I understand is based here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, thank you for doing that, the, the, the memoir, the book is titled, My Battle Against Hitler, subtitled Faith, Truth, and Defiance in the Shadow of the Third Reich. I highlighted much of that book, John Henry Crosby found it humorous and also endearing, that I have marked up my book, flagged it with page margin things, but uh, because it's so important today, and thanks be to God, we have resurrected and revived the legacy of Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand. But there's, here's one of the snips that I've highlighted from that book. Now pay attention to this. Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand, he said every form of anti-personalism which he said is seen most clearly in Bolshevism and National Socialism, is a logical consequence of liberalism's failure to recognize the true essence and value of the person. But such anti-personalism goes far beyond what existed in liberalism, he says, since it intensifies the individualistic error and disvalue of the human person. So von Hildebrand says anti-personalism is the great and terrible danger of our times irrespective of the guise under which it presents itself, he said, this poison must not be allowed a role in the construction of a genuine community. So, in a visit with Dr. Von Hildebrand's wife, Dr. Alice Von Hildebrand, in this past January in her New York home in an engaging conversation I had with Lily, I brought the book, and she saw how marked up it was, and she thanked me for reading it, because apparently she doesn't think a lot of people are reading it who do interviews about it. Um, imagine that. I opened it to that one page and that one paragraph because we were so engaged in conversation about her husband's legacy, about what he taught, about the truths of that age and this age and every age and history and not learning from history. And I made that point, how can we not learn from the errors of history? So I opened the book to that flagged page, to that snip I just spoke of. And I repeated these very words, and I expressed my amazement that we have not learned from the errors of history, and I said, we seem to be in the same dangerous situation today, wouldn't you say? By then, her jaw had already dropped while I was reading that, that snip. Her eyes were wide, and she looked absolutely ready to come out of her chair. She said, no, and her finger was pointed in the air. And I was startled, because I thought, well, yeah, it's like we've repeated these errors. She said, it's worse now. Then she stated what should be the obvious, that today these dangers to genuine personalism and human dignity are many and they are not posed by uniformed jackboots, but disguised in countless ways, ways and posed by other Americans in media and in politics, politics especially, well, media too, as social policies and laws that serve the common good and advance human rights rights, quoted, and freedom and social justice, among other slogans. Rights, reproductive rights, reproductive justice, freedom, free, freedom to choose, social justice, misapplied in countless ways. Pope John Paul II frequently, throughout his life and pontificate, spoke out for human dignity, the true understanding of personalism, and called distortions of personalism, quote, skepticism regarding the very existence of moral truth in an objective moral law in contemporary society. Well, that certainly describes our society. In an ad limita address to bishops in America in 1998, Pope John Paul II said, quote, this attitude just described is quite prevalent in the cultural institutions that influence public opinion. And it must be said, he said, is common to many of your countries, our countries, academic, political, and legal structures. And we might add the powerful mainstream media. In that address, Pope John Paul II connected this disorder with the misunderstanding and misuse of conscience, free will, and freedom. He said, culturally powerful forces insist that the rights of conscience are violated by the very idea that there exists a moral law ascribed in our humanity. 
which we can come to know by reflecting on our nature and our actions, in which lays certain obligations upon us because we recognize them as universally true and binding. Conscience, he said, is that inner place where man detects a law which he does not impose upon himself, but which holds him to obedience. And he's citing himself, even he's citing Gaudium et Spes. This is a gem. He said, freedom of conscience is never freedom from the, from the truth but always and only freedom in the truth. When the church teaches, for, for example, that abortion, he said, sterilization, or euthanasia are always morally inadmissible, she is giving expression, I kept finding the word expression throughout my research here, to the universal moral law inscribed in the human heart, on the human heart, and is therefore teaching something which is binding on everyone's conscience. A society, John Paul said, or culture, which wish, wishes to survive, cannot declare the spiritual dimension of the human person to be irrelevant to public life. And yet, that's exactly what big media and big politics have been doing, and especially in late March and early April 2015, when the free exercise of religion became a culture battle escalated to new heights. Pope Benedict time and again said virtually those same words of John Paul II, and both popes said them to the UN General Assembly in their addresses to that august body. Virtually the exact same words about the primacy of conscience, the primacy of those nation states understanding the importance of protecting religious freedom of their people because man is a spiritual being. Both popes went to the floor of the General Assembly and made that point. Their spiritual, the spiritual dimension of the human person is so preeminent, it must be respected as our first freedom. Our bishops have written about that, our first freedom. In January 2012, Pope Benedict warned America, the church in the US is, is facing radical secularism. And he said it's posing new threats to religious liberty in this country. Now that timing was amazing. In January 2012, warning in it, us, American Catholics, that the church in the US is facing radical secularism, posing new threats to religious liberty in this country. The timing is fascinating given that it was just after Hosanna Tabor, Supreme Court case, which unanimously, all justices unanimously upheld religious freedom in Hosanna Tabor. His message came just after that. And his message came one day before the HHS federal mandate was issued. Incredible timing. He said, at the heart of every culture, this is Benedict, 2012, whether perceived or not is a consensus. He talked about consensus to the United Nations, tyranny of the majority, consensus, when consensus becomes truth now. He said, at the very heart of culture, whether perceived or not, is a consensus about the nature of reality and the moral good, and thus about the conditions for human flourishing. In America, that consensus, he said, as enshrined in your nation's founding documents, was grounded in a worldview shaped not only by faith, but a commitment to certain ethical principles deriving from nature and nature's God. Today, he said, that consensus has eroded significantly in the face of powerful new cultural currents, which are not only directly opposed to core moral teachings of the Judeo-Christian tradition, but increasingly hostile to Christianity as such. That was Benedict in January 2012. Our nation's opinion shapers in politics and media especially are driving those powerful cultural currents to which he addressed himself. And then Pope Benedict said this, the church's defense of a moral reasoning based on the natural law is grounded on her conviction that this law is not a threat to our freedom but rather a language. I love that he used the word language which enables us to understand ourselves and the truth of our being, and so to shape a more just and humane world. There it is again, expression and language, the word, understanding of ourselves, our dignity. It's all, it's all of a piece. That's a key statement, not only in the time he uttered it, but in all times. But it has become increasingly pressing, pressing in many years since the federal HHS mandate was issued, as we know, violating the faith and conscience of, a whole, of whole populations of Amer Americans, and even more pressing in recent weeks, as we know. Religious freedom battles have been going on since HHS was issued. Recent weeks, 
Religious Freedom Restoration Act. What, real quick aside, what are they battling in the courts on the HHS mandate? The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the Alliance Defending Freedom, all of these lawsuits that are going into the courts across the country? What they're battling is the violation, not only of conscience, but of rights, rights that are grounded in the Constitution, in the free exercise thereof portion, and First Amendment. But what it really violates is RIFRA, the federal RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 1993, almost unanimously passed both houses of Congress and very bipartisan uh, majority, total, almost totally, but certainly a majority, bipartisan, to protect religious freedom with a two-pronged attack that the government cannot infringe on so important and key a right for Americans unless it, it met two prongs. This is totally departing from my talk, but one prong is, is that it has to have a compelling interest to do so. And if they could pass that test, the second one is that they are pursuing it by the least restrictive means possible. I don't see how they can go into court and argue either one of those, but anyway. But, so that's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So for these past weeks, what are we hearing? The Religious Freedom Restora Restoration Act is discriminating against people who want to get married and all these things and people baking cakes and people doing photography and that's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but why? Because in 1993, those issues weren't, weren't issues. So we've been hearing about this a lot. Where are the Christians? We've got to be out there. We've got to be making a robust, not only defense, I don't like being on the defense all the time, a robust explanation of what our religious liberty rights are, what the Constitution says. They, this, this is key in our time, these recent weeks especially. Those state laws under challenge, under attack, Indiana, Arkansas, wherever they are, are virtually identical to the federal one, again, widely accepted since 1993, but now they're being denounced and vilified and refuted. With lies and distortions claiming that they protect discrimination, they do not. But in the haste to fix these laws and quell the fury of the law's opponents, the fix no longer gave people of faith who live according to their morally informed beliefs protection from those who would discriminate against them. Nation, we have a problem. If it sounds like some of the same warnings, reports, and observations have been repeated in this paper, it's because they have. Over and over, from scholars and authors, clergy and popes, from Plato to Pieper to Pope Francis, we have moral confusion. Walter Lippmann wrote Public Opinion after seeing how newspaper reports on the Russian Revolution were distorted and inaccurate, based not on facts but the hopes of those doing the reporting. His fundamental concern then is ours today, access to accurate information. He argued that unbiased information was essential because, listen to this, quote, decisions in a modern state Walter Lippmann in public opinion. Decisions in a modern state tend to be made by the interaction, not of Congress and the executive, but of public opinion and the executive. That's why we are being manipulated. It's amazing that he didn't write those words in our time. When media are complicit in advancing false narratives about news events, and social media users launch campaigns to advance those false narratives, the falsehoods take on, we all know this, take on a life of their own, and people are persuaded. Words are used as tools and weapons. Consider the effect of using positive words like pro and choice, those are positive words, freedom and rights, to describe an agenda like abortion on demand, and pro-life advocates for human rights and dignity are called anti-abortion. They change their style books, and many of the media outlets, most secular media outlets, change their style books. Have, you have to report it this way from now on. Years ago, pro-lifers are called anti-abortion, anti-choice, etc. So choice covers abortion. Compassion is now the mantle for euthanasia. And equality is the mantle that covers the movement to redefine marriage and law. Consider this statement from Joseph Pieper about the distortion of language and its power, and it is a particularly incisive one. This is a good quote. The place of authentic reality is taken over by a fictitious reality. My perception is indeed still directed toward an object, but now it's a pseudo-reality. Deceptively appearing as being real, so much so that it becomes almost impossible anymore to discern the truth. 
For the general public, he said, is being reduced to a state where people are not only unable to find out about the truth, but also become unable even to search for the truth because they are satisfied with the deception and trickery that have determined their convictions, satisfied with the fictitious reality created by design through the abuse of language. We need bold and unambiguous language and many more people speaking it. Cardinal, in fact, all of us. Cardinal Francis George, in a column in the Chicago Archdiocese newspaper, The Catholic New World, in 1998, wrote, political questions which influence our nation's policies on respect for life and its preservation from conception to natural death are defining issues before us. This is not a narrow or single issue approach, he said. Was slavery a single issue? Is the economy a single issue? This is Cardinal George. Respect for life is no more a single issue than is concern for freedom. We will need personal holiness, he said, to rebuild a moral society on a foundation of objective truth. So at a function in Chicago, a prayer breakfast at which I was the MC, and he was speaking at it, we sat at the same table. I said, Your Eminence, I'm about to go back up to the podium. This is a wrap-up thing. He said, and I'm gonna do some closing remarks for the people, and do you have a message for me to give them? He said, yes, tell them to do something. So, that's uh, what I titled this section, Do Something. Consider yourself encouraged. How are we doing with Card what Cardinal George said? We need personal holiness, for starters, and personal witness of our belief in the true, the good, and the beautiful, encountering false, false witnesses, countering with clarity and charity. How are we doing on that? and our personal witness of belief in the true, the good, and the beautiful. We get galvanized over the threat of losing religious freedom, over losing our right to express Catholic faith, Christian beliefs, and the gospel value, gospel values we believe in and hold so dearly in public. We, we get galvanized over the very threat of the loss of that. And even the right to remain free to let our convictions inform our decisions and our, our public actions. But here's a challenging question. And I've wondered it a lot since January 2012 and the HHS mandate. How well have we stood up for our beliefs until this threat to our religious freedom escalated in 2012? What we have battled so hard for, what we've gone out to the rallies, stand up for religious freedom. Before that, how well were we standing up for our beliefs and living them as a public witness before that challenge came? We tend to appreciate what we've had after we've lost it. We find ourselves imagining the real loss of this freedom now for the first time. The abortion movement got years ahead of us before the pro-life movement gained ground, and so much so, I have to add, happily, we're now ahead of a diminished abortion industry. However, they remain powerful, with powerful allies and the considerable power of elite media. But consider what I call the power of one. Watch a video of live action's Lila Rose debating advocates on cable news networks. I can think of the one on CNN's Crossfire with NARAL's Elise Hogue, all available on YouTube or on her site, liveaction.org. Or when Lila debated on Fox News with Tamara Holder. I've never, ever seen Tamara Holder in a, a, almost a meltdown. She just didn't know. You could see her body language, her facial expression. She was very angry at Lila Rose. Lila remained composed. This is what I'm trying to say we have to do. And this is a witness of how to do it. Or Lila Rose in March 2015 at the United Nations. First article I saw about this on CFAM was Lila Rose rocks the UN. So I had her on the program to talk about what she said. And in a packed auditorium during the UN Commission on the Status of Women conference, just in March 2015, she stood up defending women, children, and human dignity with such a rousing applause, I believe it was a standing ovation, and she got the, the gratitude of the permanent observer to the Holy See who was sitting next to her. It was amazing, that witness, that unflinching, unapologetic, courageous, robust witness that's constant. Watch a video of Heritage Foundation fellow Ryan T. Anderson on any number of news shows, speaking from facts and reason about marriage law or religious liberty, and getting the ire 
of C a former CNN host at the time, Piers Morgan, or Don Lemon, or MBC, most recently, MSNBC's Ed Schultz. They're all available online. It's an amazing thing to watch how Ryan Anderson calmly, clearly, and charitably continues to repeat the facts and reason. He applies reason. These are two young adults, just two young adults, making a huge difference and inspiring huge followings of their own by speaking out in whatever media is available to them or using media available to us all. Back when abortionist Kermit Gosnell, remember that, was finally stopped by authorities from committing atrocities in what those authorities themselves dubbed a house of horrors, a Pennsylvania abortion clinic that had to be inspected by jurors in his case in hazmat suits to prepare for trial. It was so horrific. It was, it was finally a graphic landmark case of the logic of abortion carried through to its conclusion. And a lot of people, some of them high-profile columnists in big secular elite media, did columns or articles, several of, many of them, saying in their columns, I, in one case it was I and my wife, said, we have always identified ourselves as pro-choice. We thought that the best thing for women. And he eloquently wrote about after the Kermit Gosnell trial came about, how they had to reconsider everything. A number of pro-choice, formerly, media people started to write that way. I know uh, Kirsten uh, Powers wrote in USA Today something very similar, and many others did. But even then, his trial began with an empty media section. It was packed. You can still probably find that online. The snapshot of seats like these, completely empty in the media section. Completely. Until pro-life leader Brian Kemper rallied some fellow pro-life. They had a teleconference, and they made a plan. He, he rallied fellow pro-life leaders to launch a very well-coordinated Twitter campaign, calling on media to cover the trial. It worked, and those seats were filled. The story got out in big media, finally, and hence these columns started coming out in big publications, including, I think, even the New York Times, a columnist you know, writes what he writes. And she writes, and they started writing, I have to rethink this. It seemed, at the time of the Gosnell trial, that the abortion industry would never recover from the powerful fallout of that revelation. But how quickly the Gosnell story went away. In a sort of reverse case, the Rolling Stone magazine cover story of an alleged rape case at the University of Virginia that caused widespread coverage, filling news cycles across nearly all the networks, turned out to be a complete hoax. The coverage went away, except for a few outlets. Are you familiar with Jean Baudrillard? You either are because you're a scholar, a student of extensive research, or a fan of The Matrix, which showed Neo opening his copy of Baudrillard's book, Simulacra and Simulation, one of his most famous, in a now famous scene in The Matrix. One of Baudrillard's best known media theories was of what he called the, quote, non-event or media's manipulation of story and symbol and therefore public perception of it or lack thereof. In fact, the other thing, but real quick I'll add aside, that Baudrillard's known for is claiming and discovering that there's no such thing as a media theory. Whereas in other disciplines, and you name any other number of disciplines, they have theory about their discipline. So I thought to myself as soon as I learned this in reading Baudrillard, well, that's kind of obvious why, because media just can't be introspective. To pose a media theory, you have to be introspective, right? Or self-reflective, and they don't allow for that. The entertainment media are using popular culture in the film industry to advance the euthanasia movement's cause now and gaining great ground and to influence public opinion of assisted suicide as the right to die at the time and by the means of one's choosing. Dawson already saw the power of this in other media when he wrote Religion in the Modern State. The entertainment media, he, he saw the power in 1935 and wrote this. As our civilization becomes more completely mechanized, it becomes easier to control, and the organs of control become more centralized. It is true that these things are not usually regarded as having much relevance to the religious issue. But get this. He says, but we may ask ourselves, 
Do people go to the cinema or to church? Does not the cinema take the place that was formerly occupied by church and chapel? Has not Hollywood got a distinct ethic of its own which influences the minds of its, of its audiences? This is Christopher Dawson. And he asks, is this ethic of Hollywood's in any sense Christian? Film industry insider and faithful Catholic Barbara Nicolosi is a regular on my show, and she says that Hollywood for over a century, the undisputed engine, no question about that, Hollywood has been for over a century the undisputed engine of global storytelling, is now in a crisis. She says by removing, and that's what's reflecting in, in what they put out, she says by removing suffering and the meaning of suffering from our culture, and they do it in film after film after film, we make the final step in denying and defying our creaturehood, we need, and we, the people of God, as she says, need an emotionally winning language for this fight. She said, if we lose the fight on euthanasia, we lose our souls. We must be aggressive in exposing the deceptions driving the euthanasia movement. Lies like the implication that personhood can somehow disappear from a wounded human body, or that a human life could ever lose its value, or that suicide can be a danger, a courageous act. Courageous. An Oscar nominee a couple of years ago called Amour, a film she said nobody ever heard of, was nominated because it was about a loving husband putting a pillow over his wife's face and suffocating her because he thought that was compassionate to end her suffering. She said, we must contradict the notion that suffering is the worst thing that can happen to a person. Yes, that and very much that, because we Christians understand the value of suffering. And we must do it by all means. We have so many available to us today, from the spoken word to the proliferation of ways to spread the written word, from Facebook and Twitter to blogs and emails and texts and letters, from parish involvement to social group engagement. We have the power to influence countless others through the expression of our words. We are in a Paul Revere moment. I know Professor Dwight Duncan has said that as well. I said it uh, at a religious freedom gathering I wonder, was he at that? It's, it's just an inside joke. I said it because I visited the Paul, the Minuteman Museum in, in, uh, Con outside Concord. And I saw how they have these lights that light up in a darkened little auditorium where you can watch a film. And it shows the beginning of the, the ride of Paul Revere. And as he goes along the, the road that night, a little red light lights up all along the way to the different people historically documented who were alerted turned on their lights, got their equipment out, got on their horses, and went and alerted others. And as he continues down that road, and, and I was watching it with my son, I, we were just amazed by how exponentially then you start to see out further out and further out into the countryside of where he rides, red lights are coming on. Because it was the ride that alerted others. Tell others, and they'll tell others, and they'll tell others. We're in a Paul Revere moment. I'm winding down here. The goal, what's the goal? Pope John Paul II who was respected as the great communicator, among many other titles, said in rapid development that the great challenge of our time for believers and all people of goodwill is maintaining truthful and free communication with attention, discernment, and constant vigilance, developing a healthy critical capacity, a healthy critical capacity regarding the persuasive force of the communication media. He urged believers to count on the help of the Holy Spirit Good reminder. He said such help is all the more necessary when one considers how greatly the obstacles intrinsic to communication can be increased by ideologies. He said the modern technologies increase to a remarkable extent the speed, quantity, and accessibility of communication. We have access to that. But they, above all, and I love this quote of John Paul's, I love it. But they, modern technologies, all of this modern communication, above all, do not favor that delicate exchange which takes place between mind and mind, between heart and heart, and which should characterize any communication at the service of solidarity and love. He elo how eloquently John Paul stated that ultimate goal of communications media, as it was originally intended to be by the first transmission of the word. Wrapping up here, contemplating the Gospel of John and remarking on John, first chapter of John, verse 11. Pope Paul VI said this in a general audience in 1974. 
on the Gospel of John, the Word. He said, Christ came, but by a mysterious and terrible misfortune, not everyone accepted him. It is the picture of humanity before us today, after 20 centuries of Christianity. How did this happen, he said. What shall we say? We do not claim to fathom a reality immersed in mysteries that transcend us, the mystery of good and evil, but we can recall the economy, that the economy of Christ, for its light to spread, requires a subordinate but necessary cooperation on the part of man, the cooperation of evangelization, of the apostolic and missionary church. If there is, he finally finishes with this, if there is still work to be done, it is all the more necessary for everyone to help her. This is where the rubber meets the road. Complacency is not an option. Our voices must be heard, our witnesses lived and seen. You can't unsee something you've seen. It has a great impact if it is beautiful. You can't unring a bell. You can't unhear something you've heard. Especially if it continues to resound and resound with truth because truth penetrates the heart. People of God, it's time to speak. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.